Amen. I ask you to take your Bibles this evening as we turn our attention to God's Word. And we are still in Mark chapter 1, maybe about halfway through here. And we're going to take the next set of verses dealing with Christ's authority over unclean spirits. As I mentioned in the last sermon, uh, when we were here in this book and chapter, that the authority of Christ here is really an overarching theme, and it's a developing theme in this chapter and in the following chapters in Mark. And we see that His authority here is revealed in His teaching, but it's also demonstrated and validated by His power over the, the demonic forces. So really we have in this text here in Mark 1, 21 to 28, really two parallel themes, which is Christ's authoritative teaching and also Christ's authority over the unclean spirits, so power, His power over the demons. Verses 14 and 15 that we looked at earlier introduce us to Christ's teaching and show that it was marked by His proclamation of the kingdom, by His heralding of the gospel. Christ called men and women to repentance and faith, and He issued that specific call to Peter and James and, um, and John and Andrew. Um, he called these specific men to be His disciples and to follow Him, and He promised to make them fishers of men. And remember that Mark's gospel is, is an action gospel. It's his, his, um, much of what he gives us is action-oriented. He doesn't deal a lot with the content of Christ's teaching, but he, he gives us a little window into the reaction. And so it, it's very vivid um, how he portrays it. It says in our text this evening, it tells us that people were amazed at Christ's teaching. They were astonished at the authority that he had. So, um, the, the exorcism of the demon is certainly part of the theme of this message, but it's really his teaching that kind of bookends that, and you'll see it as we read the text, and that receives the thematic emphasis of this passage. In fact, these two aspects that I've mentioned really form our outline, Christ's authoritative teaching and his authoritative power over the forces of evil. So, Let us read this text, but before we do, let us pray and ask God's blessing upon the reading and the preaching of His Holy Word. Let us pray. Eternal God, our merciful Heavenly Father, we look to You needing You and professing and confessing that need, and we rejoice that Your Word is now before us, for it is a light unto our feet and a lamp unto our path, and it As we hide it in our heart, Lord, it will keep us from sinning against you. I pray that tonight that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Mark chapter 1, verse 21. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in the synagogue, in their synagogue, a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. 
And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. Amen. And we praise God that he has spoken to us tonight in his holy and inerrant word. The Gospels, as they are historical narratives, are good about giving us locations of the events. And this text is no exception. It situates the events of of this text in Capernaum. We know, of course, that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, but his parents were from Nazareth, and that's where he grew up. He was called a Nazarene. And much of his ministry was in this region of Galilee, kind of around the shores of the, lake, of the Sea of Galilee. It's, it was here where we looked at last time, where Jesus called these first four disciples to, him, to follow him. Incidentally, the Sea of Galilee is only about 13 miles long, and we see here that Jesus was preaching in this coastal town of Capernaum. And that this town served as a home base for at least part of his ministry because we'll see next time that Peter lived there. Um, and and he, Jesus kind of used this town and I think Peter, perhaps Peter's house as a home base for his ministry. And our text finds Jesus teaching in the synagogue. Now Mark doesn't give us the background, but it's likely that the synagogue leaders knew of Jesus. They knew that he was a rabbi, he was a teacher, Um, because they probably wouldn't have allowed him to teach if they hadn't at least heard him teach before. It was on the synagogue day, on the Sabbath day, and he was teaching in the synagogue. And I'm told, I've read and heard that this very synagogue has been uncovered in the nation of Israel. And if you were to go to the city of Capernaum, um, you could see this place where Jesus taught in this text, which is amazing. You can see where he amazed the men of the synagogue with his teaching. Mark leads us to believe that it didn't take a long sermon or a series of preaching events for them to realize that something different was about something was different about Jesus' teaching. We see, first of all, that his teaching was not like the scribes, the text says. Historians and commentators tell us that. The services in the synagogue um, usually consisted of prayers and readings from the Law and the Prophets. This was followed by a scripture reading in Aramaic, um, and then a brief homily and a closing benediction. It seemed pretty simple. Scribes of that day, many of whom were Pharisees, were very good at passing along the traditions of the elders, of those who had come before. They liked to relay the comments of these men as they taught the law. Usually, their their homilies were simply parroting what other people had said. They didn't stand on their own authority, but on the authority of their spiritual forefathers. Jesus, on the other hand, stood on his own authority. He spoke with divine authority. He could say like the prophets of old, thus saith the Lord. Because he was the Lord, he spoke with the authority of the divine, and the people recognized that something was different, and they were amazed. This leads me to the second thing that this text stresses about Jesus' teaching, was that it carried authority. Now, our postmodern culture has tried to teach us that we should not trust authority, 
That authority is a type of repression upon us. And so, um, whether we like it or not, I think we have to admit we've somehow been influenced by that. But if, if we have a need of some kind of, of something that we don't know about, we want a trusted authority. If you've ever had a car that's had a repeated problem that you can't seem to get fixed, you want to find a mechanic that knows what they're doing. Somebody that is trained on that type and model of your car to fix it, to go to the heart of the matter, to understand a situation and offer real solutions. You want a trusted authority. Authority associated, is associated with knowledge, with experience, with influence, power, and perhaps privilege. Certainly those who are in authority are respected, and their words carry weight. I'm sure many of you might remember the, the TV commercials from the 70s and 80s of, of E.F. Hutton. And um, in these commercials, I, I had to go back and watch a few of them on YouTube, because in these commercials, they would, um, someone would say that E.F. Hutton was their broker. And by the time that they could say, E.F. Hutton says, everybody was listening. Everybody was spellbound to hear what E.F. Hutton had to say. And then, of course, the announcer would come in and say, when E.F. Hutton talks, people listen. So the, the message they were conveying in those commercials was, E.F. Hutton's an authority. You should listen to this person. But Jesus here is no trusted mechanic or financial guru. His teaching is carried out not by practical authority, but by divine authority. Jesus was emphatic in teaching his followers that he came from the Father and that all things that he heard of his Father he had made known to them. He did what the Father said and he taught what the Father said. He did that not just because he was a messenger from God. He was God himself. His name was Emmanuel, God with us. He said in the, in the closing chapter of Matthew, Matthew 28, he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And who gave him this authority? God the Father gave it to him. <clears throat> Matthew eleven twenty seven 27 says, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. John three thirty five. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. John 13, 3, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into His hands and that He had come from God and was going back to God, knelt down and washed the apostles' feet. And Ephesians 1, 21, 20 and 21 reminds us that God raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Jesus is God. He has divine authority from eternity past. But in the incarnation, Jesus took on flesh. He became a man, and in His death and resurrection, God glorified in Him glorified him in a way not recognized before. As the God-man, Christ was exalted as the one who had conquered death through his own death. God exalted Christ in his death and resurrection as the one who once for all accomplished our salvation and purchased our redemption. 
He is the creator of all earthly authority. Colossians tells us that by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority. All things were created through Him and for Him. Christ's teaching carried divine authority. I also think that they were amazed at Christ's teaching because it was effective in reaching the heart. When you think about Jesus' teaching, think about the Sermon on the Mount where he took the Old Testament. He says, I didn't come to destroy the law and the prophets. I came to fulfill them. And he took what they knew so well from the Old Testament and he drove it into their hearts in a way that I don't think they had faced before. Imagine hearing Jesus preach. Imagine sitting on the hillside during the Sermon on the Mount, hearing him say, Do not think that I am come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And then a few minutes later to hear him say, You have heard that it was said by those of old, You shall not murder. But I say to you, If you hate your brother, you are a murderer. Or you have heard it said, Do not commit adultery. But I say unto you, If you look upon a woman with lustful intent, You have committed adultery already in your heart. I imagine many in his audience that day had to think about their own hearts. Christ's teaching was effective in reaching their hearts. It shook them up. Mark says that they were amazed. Jesus did not simply say what the law said or what others said about the law. He didn't come to nullify the law. He came to fulfill the law, and he applied it to men's hearts effectively. And he did it with authority While his hearers did not recognize this, his words carried the full authority of all the law and the prophets. Not only was Jesus' teaching, unlike the scribes, and effective in reaching the heart, full of divine authority, but his teaching was also the primary aspect of his ministry. Certainly, Jesus came to heal, to cast out demons, and to raise the dead, but the primary aspect of Christ's teaching was his, of his ministry leading up to his suffering, death, and resurrection was his teaching and preaching. We will read later in chapter 1 that Jesus said to his disciples in response to the people's desire to see him, he said, let us go on to the next town that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. He's saying, I have to preach the message of the kingdom. He came to preach. He came to teach. He came to proclaim the good news of salvation. He came to announce the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. He said, The kingdom of God is at hand, therefore repent and believe the gospel. That's not to say that the healings and the miracles were just tacked on, some type of a lanyard from Jesus to be nice while he was there preaching. No, these miracles served the purpose of showing who he was and showing his victory and authority over all things. And that leads me to the second theme of this text, Christ's authoritative power over the forces of evil. Let's go back to the synagogue for a moment. While they were there, They were amazed at Christ's teaching. And then Mark says, he uses that word immediately again. It's like all of a sudden, this guy seems to appear almost out of nowhere, just railing at Jesus. This man who was possessed with a demon. He calls him, the text calls it an unclean spirit, but it it was a demon. 
railing against Jesus right in the middle of the synagogue. He says, what, do you have, what have you to do with us? The NASB renders this, what business do we have with you? In other words, what do you want from me, Jesus? Then the Spirit asks, have you come to destroy us? And while this is posed as a question, it could just really as easily be an assertion saying, you have come to destroy us. This unclean spirit is recognizing that the kingdom of Satan is being encroached upon by Jesus Christ. This spirit, speaking in the voice of a man whose body he possessed, then recognizes who Jesus is, proclaiming him as the Holy One of God. Some commentators point out that this may have been an attempt by the demon to get the upper hand in a sense of naming Jesus. But whatever the reason was, he was unsuccessful in that, of course. It was to no avail because Christ quickly asserts his authority over the demon. Jesus rebuked him and commanded him to come out of him. The demon departed. He did go kicking and screaming. The text says he was convulsing the man. The man was convulsing under the power of the demon, and the demon was crying out, but the demon had to obey. The man who had become a host to the unclean, defiling spirit was now free. So there's several things I think we need to consider as we think about this portion of the text. First of all, we need to recognize that the demon was real. This is no fairy tale. This is not some fable that, Mark, or that Peter told Mark to put in this gospel to teach us some type of object lesson. Certainly this text teaches us things, but it does it through the actual events that occurred. We know that the demon was real. We know that Satan is real. We see it in all throughout Scripture. We see it back in Genesis 3. Satan, in the form of the serpent there, tempted Eve, and then Adam and Eve fell, bringing sin and condemnation upon themselves and all their descendants, including you and me. And following this event, God's curse upon the serpent and upon Satan alerts us to the reality that for the rest of Scripture, really for the rest of history until the end of time, Satan and his forces are at war with God and the people of God. Let me say that again. Satan and his forces are at war with God and the people of God. My mother tells me a story. She's old enough to remember some of the events of World War II. And she tells me the story of when they went to church on a Sunday evening on December 7th, 1941. And she remembers, she tells me that she remembers the pastor greeting them. And I think he may, he may have begun the service that evening by saying... Brothers and sisters, we are at war. No doubt these words hung with with weight and dread upon the congregants that night in that little church in Missouri. They had probably wondered for weeks and perhaps months if if and when this day might come when America would be pulled in to World War II. And here at that day, they had to face the frightening reality of war. I want to proclaim a similar message to you this evening. Brothers and sisters, we are at war. We are at war with Satan and his forces. He is the enemy of God and he is the enemy of God's people. I fear that in our modern age, we seem to have cultural holdovers from the age of enlightenment, which taught that everything could be explained scientifically. 
And because of that, I think we struggle to realize the reality of Satan. I fear that our American culture has somehow sanitized Satan to make him appear as something else. He's not a person, and so it's almost like we think he's out of sight and out of mind. But Scripture is clear that he is real and that he is our enemy. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 5 that we should be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He is our adversary, our enemy. It was clear in this text that this unclean spirit was an enemy of Christ. That's very clear early on in this text. And if you're a child of God, then Satan is your enemy as well. Peter likens the devil to a lion. The lion's the, really the top of the food chain. Everybody should fear a lion because the lion is a ravenous, meat-eating beast that can kill and destroy. The lion is one, the one to watch. He is the one to fear. He is the one to stay away from. And the devil's like that. He is our enemy and we must know him. Every good general knows the tactics of his enemy. Every good coach knows the plays of his opponent. And every good Christian needs to know the strategies of his enemy, the devil. Now, his strategies are similar in many ways, but they're usually different for each one of us. We all have besetting sins. Perhaps the holidays are times when you tend to overindulge in food, drink, or debt, or just too much stuff. Now's a good time to take stock of some of these things. When and under what circumstances are you most tempted? Learn to build fences of protection and accountability in these areas. Know your enemy, know his tactics, and know yourself. Peter says, resist him, being firm in your faith. Build up your faith through the word, prayer, and the fellowship of the saints so that you are strengthened in this fight against your enemy. However, I must say that we also have to balance this and not become too preoccupied with the devil. We don't need to think of every believer as being demon-possessed. We don't need to attribute every misfortune to little demons. We must recognize that God is sovereign and He is in control. Nothing, absolutely nothing happens outside of His sovereign will. But the devil is real and he is our enemy. And if we are God's child, we can rest assured that He is sovereignly working all things for our good and for His glory. C.S. Lewis has famously written, There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves, meaning the devils, are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist and a magician with the same delight. We have to stay in between that. We have to recognize the devil is real. He is our foe. We have to recognize his tactics. We have to also recognize that God is sovereign and God is in control. We, as we've seen in our text, like I said earlier, there's an animosity that is seen instantly between Jesus and this unclean spirit. 
the demon lashes out at Jesus. And Jesus sharply rebukes and contains this evil spirit. We should notice not only that this demon was real, but that Jesus knew him. And that the demon knew Jesus. And notice also the plural in verse 24. He says, what have you to do with us? Have you come to destroy us? This demon was really not just speaking for himself. He was speaking for the whole host of demons. He recognized that Christ's authority extended not just to him that day in the synagogue, but to all his brother demons, to the whole force of the demonic force. The demons knew who Jesus was. They knew he had come to destroy the works of Satan. This struggle was in the synagogue in Capernaum, but it was more. It represented a cosmic struggle between the forces of evil and God himself. Jesus was bringing the battle to the devil's home turf here. This deliverance was a glorious deliverance for the man that day, but it was so much more. It was a picture of Christ's authority over all the forces of evil. Jesus was reminding Satan that his days are and were and are numbered. And this is how his ministry and this exorcism are connected. His teaching was validated by the victory over the evil spirit, and this encounter with the evil spirit represented the whole cosmic struggle between Satan and God. The last thing we should remember is that this evil spirit, despite his challenging words and his convulsing and his crying out, had to yield to the authority of Jesus Christ. Jesus shut him down and drove him out. Jesus wins. Peter ends that section that we just talked about, warning us of the devil being like a roaring lion. He ends that section with this. And after you have suffered a while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. We know the end of the story. All the battles are not yet fought. But we know who wins the war. Unlike that ominous night over 76 years ago when Americans did not know the outcome of the war or what it might cost them in dollars or in in the lives of their sons, we know the outcome. We too may not be sure of the cost to ourselves, to our reputation or our comfort, but we know who wins. This passage is a reminder that Christ's authority extends over all the earth and encompasses even the spirit world. The Apostle Paul reminds us in the closing verses of Romans that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Satan has not yet been bound and cast into the lake of fire, but he will be. Ultimately, the Lamb wins. In the meantime, let us be sober. Let us be watchful. Let us resist the devil and he will flee from us. Abide in Christ. Hearken to his authoritative teaching. We have it right here in his word. This is what will keep and guard us from the schemes of the evil one. Receive and rest upon Christ today. He is the one in whom you can trust. He is the one who has authority over our enemy. And just let me close with a couple verses of that great hymn, of Martin Luther. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. 
the prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. That word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sighted. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Let us pray. Lord God, we thank you that your authority reaches to the ends of the earth, to realms seen and unseen, and that your authority and power extends even over the forces of Satan. Give us grace to trust you, to walk in faith, to be on guard against the wiles of the devil, and recognize that he is our enemy and we must resist him. Give us grace in the battles that we face day by day. Give us grace to remember that the victory is ours in Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.